Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The following programme contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Kia ora, I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from a Copyright Licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. This session, Funny, featuring Leah McFall and Michelle A. Court, was chaired by Liz Breslin. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. I would first of all like to acknowledge the Tangata Whenua of Otapoti and the Dunedin Art Gallery, the Dunedin's Writing Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival and of course the UBS Bookshop from whom you can buy all the books that are on the table just outside there at the conclusion of this session. This session is going to be an hour long. We have got 50 minutes of talking with our wonderful speakers here um, after which we've got 10 minutes of audience questions that is from you guys. Um, We will have microphones for you to do that, just in case you get microphone anxiety. You can spend the next 50 minutes worrying about that if you would like to. Great. So um, it falls to me next to introduce our speakers for today. We have here Leah McFall, who has previously worked for RNZ, TVNZ and the NZSO, lots of acronyms there, and is currently a columnist for the SST, also known as the Sunday Star Times. She says that she writes about small suburban real-time observations, uh, real-time observations that include such things as scrunchies, sitting like a duchess, cervix donuts, postnatal anxiety, and how she would deal with the queer eye guys over the dinner table. So um, lots to be getting on with there. Her, her <laughs> columns have been collected together into a book called Karuri Confidential, which is published by Lunch and Sausage Books. Um, she is not, in case you want to Google her, the Belfast-born second um, no. place getter in The Voice UK. Aww. She is the bane of my existence. Yes. Oh. She's got the Instagram. Well. She's got my name. She's got the blue tick on Twitter. She's I've got a lovely crossed. new song called Freckles as well, which no, I suggest hasn't. you don't check out. <laughs> check out the book. It's called um, Karori Confidential. Um, she is also my friend Lindsay's favourite columnist. My friend Lindsay couldn't be here today, so me and Leah agreed that it was appropriate to bring Lindsay along and let her sit in the audience. So welcome Lindsay. Yay, Lindsay. Thanks Lindsay. There we go. <laughs> nice hair. Yes, she's looking lovely. Um, Michelle Acourt. Um, Michelle has been being funny since 1993 officially and a lot longer than that. Um, she was named Comedian of the Decade in 2010 and she likes to think that she has a portfolio career. Um, which includes also being a columnist in Your Weekend. She's a TV and radio commentator. Of course, because we are at a writers' festival, it would be remiss not to mention her books as well, both published by HarperCollins. Um, Stuff I Forgot to Tell My Daughter is there. The most important teenagers in my life know this book as the one where the guy sticks his dick in the mashed potato to remind you that it's not worth sleeping with boys just because they want to sleep with you. I love that. Yes. It's a reprint that's going on the back cover. Yeah, it's a good life lesson. Um, Also, How We Met, which uh, was published again by HarperCollins in 2018, which has been described as an indulgent treat with sprinkles and laughter. But I would like to say also it's gentle and gently funny, a force for good in the world. So thank you very much for both of you being here to talk about being funny and writing funny. So I guess first question, what is the importance of funny in writing? It's the thing that makes it light. It's the thing that makes it dance, isn't it? It's, um, uh, makes, uh, there's a Dario Faux theory that if you make people laugh, it opens their minds and lets ideas in. And I, I think that's, that's part of what it's about. Mm. It's, it's, it's the guiding principle of everything I enjoy. It's what I read again. I'll read a humour writer 10, 20 times. I'll read the same person for life. I'm very loyal to them because when somebody makes you laugh, especially in print, there's an intimacy about print. 
When someone makes you laugh, it's very, it's very releasing. You know, there's something really releasing about it. Something that um, that makes you feel less fearful, in a way, mm. about being in the world. And I think that um, humor is quite underrated critically. You know, there's not a lot of critical recognition for humor writing as such because it the best kind of humor writing is. Do you find it? It, it it's effortless to read. Yeah. So I think people assume that it's artless to write, you know. Oh, they're funny. This must be easy for them. But I think that there is real craft and real dignity in humour writing that isn't often acknowledged. Um, So for me, they've always been my favourite writers and the ones I actually find quite profound and will return to, whereas I might not return to, like, you know, Tolstoy or something. (laughs) I might only read that once. I I know that Irma Bombeck is a favourite writer of yours and mine too. And the wisdom that you get of writers like that is amazing, right? So I can remember being really little and um, searching through my parents, my mother's book collection, and she had lots of uh, reference books for some reason, uh, encyclopedias, I don't know who knocked on the door. And (laughs) (laughs) uh, one of the books that I really loved was the Oxford Dictionary of Humorous Quotations. And to me that was you know, philosophy 101, inside all of those quips and witticisms was how the world works. So there's a lot of wisdom wrapped up in those funny bits. And also, I think we underestimate how witty writers use humour as a tactic. You know, um, Catelyn Moran, who actually, I think you... You remind me, I think you too, oh. you get on. Oh, I you know, so. you too, like so great. I'd like a gin. She's like, she's political, yeah. but she uses her humor. So she, she's very open about this. She says, um, the humor, so she's, you, you know, columnist, feminist, humorist, polemicist. She says that humor is a tax that she pays. Her jokes are a tax that she pays to win and hold your attention. Mm. So she, I'm sure, is naturally funny and effortlessly funny in person. But actually, there's something quite important going on. She wants to change your mind. And I think that that humor is very disarming like that. You sort of don't see it coming. You know, it's never in the front section of the paper, is it? We're always at the back. Yep. But actually, it's very powerful. It's more powerful than we, we, we realize, I think. The tax metaphor is lovely. I often think of uh, stand-up comedy shows that I do as a Trojan horse. So you... Tricks them into coming to a comedy show and convince them to smash the patriarchy by the end of it. Sneaky. <laughs> yeah. it's still, the patriarchy's still there, it hasn't worked yet. But it's, we're working on it. But you're working on <laughs> yeah. it. So, using humour as a tool, when did you guys first know that you are funny? You are funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually. I don't want to sound like I'm avoiding the question, but I think it's sort of not up to you. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't feel that funny. The people in my life don't really acknowledge, that's really funny. You know, that's not how my... I live a really quiet suburban life. Um, not a lot happens to me. <laughs> You've read my columns. You're aware of that. Um, but... Uh, but I just seem to have got a knack for finding funny people... like. All of my friends, never the funniest person in the room. My friends are also quick to laugh, or they're really quick to make me laugh. They're just funny people. When I'm in the school playground picking up the kids, I will somehow find the funniest parent there because funny people are everywhere. They're just everywhere. I just seem to be very receptive to those people. In my family, I'm not, I, I'm not the wise cracking one at the table. You know, That's my brother. My brother is effortlessly funny. My dad, who's a plumber, retired now, is a really gifted mimic. He's a fantastic sort of character actor, and he would come home every day and he would imitate his clients. Um, So funny is a a guiding principle. It's a way of life. Um, I did not realize that I could make a living out of wit, because my columns aren't funny every week. They're not until I was offered this job. And the embarrassing thing is I was offered this job at the age of 43, and I needed permission. And I think there's a, a lot of reasons why that, that's the case for me, but that's the God's honest truth. Until I got that call, it wouldn't have occurred to me 
to do what Michelle does, mm. to attempt to, to make anyone in this room laugh for money. So mm. you feel like you've needed permission to be the funny one in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And how about you, Michelle? Uh, Humour, funny storytelling was had huge currency in my family. So yeah. uh, I had a great uncle, Frank, on my mother's side, and we, my brother and I spent all our holidays, school holidays with them and summer holidays, and it was like going to a show yeah. for a couple of weeks, and Frank would tell wonderful stories. So, and I was the funny one at the dinner table. That was my job. I was, my job was to be the fixer of any unpleasantness or tension by saying something hilarious and I got rewarded <clears throat> for doing that very early mm-hmm. um, and and then working in tandem with my grandmother Edith who was also hilarious quite acerbic she could be um, quite cutting and um, robust in her humor so she and I would do a sort of double act from when I was maybe three or four years old um, so that was my that was my job and my family was to be the funny one and you picked up on that as a way of uh, melding relationships. Yeah, or, yeah, easing tension, um, and yeah, yeah, turning, turning, you know, I, um, <laughs> turn, turning, turning unco- uh, uncomfortable situations into comfortable ones. Into comfortable ones. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Um, so when you are creating the the funny situations, let's say. I know that you have experience creating them on the stage doing your stand-up. You also have experience doing them on the page. And uh, uh, stuff to tell your daughter was, was both the page and the stage. So mm. do you want to tell us a little bit about the differences in creating humour in those situations? So the book happened after the show. I, after my daughter left home, I you know, literally ran around the house going, oh my God, there's so many things I'm going to tell her. It's too late now. It's not too late. But I, so I thought I would write a show about all of those things. So it was a purely, it was a stand-up show with some, it was a Trojan horse that had um, a little bit about the history of feminism tucked in the middle of it. <laughs> Hilarious. And, um, <laughs> and, and then lovely Finlay MacDonald at HarperCollins said, why don't you turn that show into a book? And I went, oh, that'll be easy. I'll just write the show down. It's a one-hour show. I'll write that down. That's a book. And a book is about 70,000, 80,000 words. Um, and I wrote the show down, and it was 20,000 words. <laughs> oh, no. I have to write some more. But it was really interesting to see the difference between, like, you can't just transcribe stand-up onto the page. It doesn't work for the eye, for the mind's eye. Um, stand-up has to sound like you just thought of it. That's the trick with stand-up. Is it, this is an idea that has just occurred to me for the very first time, and I'm telling you about it now. And you layer those phrases over each other, and you use repetition um, of words. Lots of those things you can, and you use pauses and facial expressions, and you can't use any of those on the page. And I think, if I'm right about this, that writing funny, it has to read like you took care to mm. place the words in the right order and pick the perfect word for it, which is really similar in... Uh, yeah, stand-up, you do choose the right word in the right order, but you have to make it sound like I'm talking now, which is to begin a whole lot of sentences and eventually one of them will end. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was a really interesting exercise for me, and and the the language written is it has to be more formal, and some words work and some words don't on the page, that you know work really well on the stage. I also had to take, um, I on stage I say fuck a lot. Um, that's <laughs> F double A R K, and you can't use too many of those in a book. So I had to find other ways of um, of doing. Uh, powerful expletives in the book. There's a lot of all good lords in there. <laughs> Great. And so, and how does that sit with your experience, Leah, of of putting the funny on the page? <sighs> yeah, it's um, that is fascinating to me because it, the last thing I would do is I I the idea make, makes me anxious imagining delivering a joke even at a dinner party. Do you know what I mean? I could never <laughs> do it. I would fluff the line. I can't even read the. 
you know, in a Christmas cracker. I, even those jokes, <laughs> those crappy one-line jokes, I, I just can't seem to hit my mark. So, I, yeah, but funnily enough, when I'm writing a column that um, I'm hoping is funny or will be received lightly or will be entertaining, is I just find that I... Um, Tone is so important. So that's what I'm... Um, if I can get the tone right, then I can sort of relax when I'm writing the piece. So, and what I've learned over the columns I've written, I haven't been in the game that long, um, about three years now, is that the columns that I enjoy writing and seem to be really well received, are um, the tone is that I, we're already friends. Do you know what I mean? So I'm writing to the reader directly. I'm addressing that person directly. I'm assuming we have a past together. Um, the best friends that you have, everyone's got a friend like this, is when you're with them, they, um, you know, when, you, when, you, when you've been with them, you feel light, you know, you feel a bit happier about things, you feel good about yourself, you feel um, less fearful about the future, but you have revealed something about yourself that's just a little bit, it's not that flattering, you know, that you wouldn't tell most people. And they have accepted that and they've been completely unshockable. There's nothing about you that grosses them out and they're like, oh my God, you think that's bad? Wait till you hear this. So that's what I'm trying to achieve. And when I've kind of, when I've got into that register, I find that I write the, the way, I hope I do, write the way I speak. Yeah. So there are natural pauses for breath. There is a music to a funny sentence. Um, I, I can't even explain it, but I would like to think that if an, an actual close friend of mine was reading a column, they'd go, yeah, 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 yeah. I can hear her voice. Like, yes. That's who she is. Yes. Yeah. And I think that sort of, it sort of starts for me with tone. That to- if you, you can, because the other thing is with weekly, writing weekly is you build up an expectation in the reader. You know, when they get to Michelle's page, they already know that she's unpredictable. They don't know what she's going to be writing about, what she's going to say. They know how they're going to feel. They're coming to that page with, with, with that knowledge and that safety. She's a friend. Um, and I think that's so important. You've got to relax and feel okay. You know, you've not got to feel safe to laugh. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. quite subconscious. Like these aren't things you're thinking about when you're, you know, drinking your coffee on a Sunday reading the paper but that's I think that's going on yeah I absolutely agree writing in your own voice writing Mm. to a friend you know if I have real struggles with uh, you know most of my columns start with me being pissed off about something um, and sometimes that anger blocks everything so I think about I have a particular friend who lives in Vancouver who loves me trusts me will let me say anything so I imagine talking to her and how would I express this to her yeah. So that's really, that's, yeah, totally. But you know how anger, because that is, I find that so interesting because so much good comedy is angry mm-hmm. underneath. And you're, you're, you're really upset about something. How do you, because my, my, I'm, I'm cross, don't get me wrong, I'm cross. But I don't have that ability. I, I don't, I'm not very good at arguing. You know, I'm not very good at persuading people to my point of view. I'm really interested to know, because you do that so successfully, I think. You make a point, a really strong point. It's often a controversial point, but you don't alienate anyone, you know. I'm really intrigued, because I think a lot of really, really smart humorists are really angry. Mm, Yeah, I'm quite angry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm really angry, Liz. No, I'm not. But I do get furious, and that's where pretty much everything I've ever written either a stand-up piece or a column comes from like I always think that my columns begin with or the good ones begin with a invisible silent oh all right then and then here's the thing that's pissed me off and forgive me for saying this but I quite often type this at the end of a column and then obviously delete it um it will finish with so fuck you Mm. um and and I think sometimes you can you can see that it's still there. One time, do you just want to leave it in and see if you can get it past the editor? And then everyone in this room, we will be the people who know and we'll be like, yeah. Shall we hear you guys read some of your writing aloud since we've just you know, been mm-hmm. speaking about hearing your voices? Because I'm sure in this room, there's a lot of people who've read your work and not 
had the experience of hearing you read it aloud. So I think this would be a really nice point to do that. Okay. Yeah. Do you want me to? Yeah. Yeah. That'd yeah, be great. yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, <laughs> good deciding. I'm oh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. wrestle or something. She's got my back, and I and I don't know if I've chosen the right bit, and I don't know how how far I'm going to get along reading it. But this is this is a oh. piece. Oh. I'll just know it's Do they fine. Need you? It's all good. All right? Yeah. Anyway. Um, it was the turn your phones off bit. I just didn't, ah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a piece that I wish I could. One of the things I didn't say is that I write things on the paper that I would quite like to take to the stage, and I've very rarely been able to do that. Once I've written them, I can't seem to do them on stage. It works the other way around. But anyway, so this is a piece that I quite like. Um, and it was about... what? Uh, uh, I don't know how to... Okay. What I like to do... I'll just read it. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, what I like to do to give my lady brain a holiday is imagine that in some parallel universe, things are different from the way they are. Not necessarily different, better, just different, different. I find it amusing and sometimes illuminating to imagine boots on other feet. For example, I like to imagine that in opposite world, there's a men's group who are up in arms. We're up in arms, a male spokeswoman would say. (laughs) We're tired of the constant criticism about the way we dress, as though what we wear says more about us than our behaviour or what comes out of our mouths. It's just a shirt and trousers. We all wear them. It makes us feel part of a group. However, conservative members of the matriarchy say it's easy to misread the social cues presented by the shirt-trouser combination. (laughs) We're not, we're not saying they're all bad eggs, a spokeswoman said, but it's a simple fact that 99% of men who are up to no good wear a shirt and trousers <laughs> while they're doing it. So it's fair to assume that when a man is seen wearing a shirt and trousers, he is up to no good. Also of concern to men's rights activists is the suggestion that men should no longer be allowed to socialise. However, lots of talkback hosts say it's just logic. A lot of women like to wear skimpy clothes, drink cocktails and dance. It's their way of letting off steam and enjoying themselves. Unfortunately, men are easily confused by this behaviour and trouble ensues, one said. We thought about asking women to stop it. (laughs) I know, we realised how ridiculous that sounded too. So now we're just discouraging men from being in social situations. (laughs) And that's that's settled too. (laughs) That's fabulous. Thank you so much. Do you feel a little less angry now you've got that? Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, that's yes. good. I, I love just being able to sometimes flip the gender around to show how absurd it is. I think I wrote that piece around the Roastbusters time yeah. when, you know, people said, what was she wearing? And, oh, you know, women wearing short skirts. What, what are they? Men can't help themselves. What is... And you just go, oh, God, can you hear yourselves? So, and no, they can't. So mm-hmm. flipping it around, I hope, shows how ridiculous that is. Absolutely. It's the thing they, they talk in writers' classes about show, not tell, don't they? They say show, not tell. And it's like you were saying, that shows so clearly the point of view. And so it brings people along. To, I mean, we all laugh at the absurdity of it. And then we're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's actually what we but do. But because you're <laughs> laughing, you're sort of in a safe space to be learning along with it. And you do yeah. that. And then you twist the knife a little bit, and then the patriarchy goes down, and we yeah. all live and happily flamed. ever after. Yeah, flame. Yes, and that's the other thing that I, I, you know, you asked about the power of humour. Laughter exists as a, it's a social construct, really, and it's what it is is all of us signalling, signalling to the other humans that we are with that we are thinking the same thought, mm-hmm. and that's the most powerful thing we can do is go. I'm thinking what you're thinking, and I feel the same way in this moment. Yeah. Mm, lovely. Leah, shall we hear from you? Yes. Yeah, oh, where am I? Um, yes, I'll, I'm not going to read a whole column. Okay. Um, just looking at the crowd, I think I might, I might read about the royals. Is that all right? <laughs> sort of oh, wait, no, I want to know more, say more about that. Looking at the crowd, yeah, I might I know, read about sorry, the royals. Sorry. Let's just no. go there for a second before you I just you had start. two... Two pieces in mind. One's about sex. I'm thinking it's a little bit early. <laughs> a little bit Say early for that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, hands up. Who has who had ever sex? had sex? <laughs> oh, should I read the sex one? No. Yes, we've all had no, sex. No, no. <laughs> Which? Okay, you guys decide. Okay, hands no, up. No, yes. No, 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 I love that. D- democratic. Hands up, please, for the sex column. Hands oh. up for the royals column. <laughs> no, it's sex. Actually, sorry. <laughs> 
Well, I walked right into that one. Didn't you, though? <laughs> um, I'm not going to read all of that. You'll be glad that I haven't worked. So this column was called Not Getting Any. A sex shop has opened in our building, Usha said a couple of weeks ago, and a hush fell over the office. It's between Subway and the donut place. <laughs> oh, that's Did so you? perfect. That's so perfect. You're a genius. Did you just you live for days like that at the office when someone walks in and says that? God, just love being alive on days like that. I tried to process what this meant. Apart from giving a whole new meaning to the term, I'm just popping down for a foot long. Does anybody want anything? <laughs> I surveyed my colleagues. Most of us had nothing on our minds but the sushi we'd be having for lunch. Was there really a market here for nipple clamps? What would I know? Sex used to be all I could think about, mainly because I wasn't getting any. Today, as a suburban mother of two, employed inside and outside the home, fighting a doomed defensive against laundry, clutter, deadlines and appointments, I've become something less than bootylicious. I have one lipstick, no scent. I buy my knickers in a five-pack at Farmers. I might as well be on the bench in a neck brace for all the game I'm getting. And I'm not the only one. Most of us in our 40s are bottoming out on the U-bend that is midlife. Down here at the nadir of the happiness curve, there's precious little in the way of slap or tickle. We're too occupied shuttling between the school run and the team meeting, Angelina, ballerina and soccer tots, the kitchen and the laundry. If you're anything like me, the most pleasing vibration in your week is the gentle Annie on a hot wash. <laughs> I think we'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to love a good gentle Annie, though. Eh? Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you. Um, I just want to backstep a little bit to something that you said just before, and you said that you don't know how to do jokes, not even jokes out of the Christmas crackers. Yeah. And I have read, and I cannot remember where, Michelle, something that you've written about funny not actually being... Jokes. jokes out of the Christmas cricket yeah. or jokes. Or jokes in, in general. Because and, and I can't do that either. Yeah, and do you want to just talk a little bit about that, the, di the difference between funny and jokes? Yeah, so, and I, uh, I'm not funny at parties. Uh, well, uh, oh, I, might, I might be. Uh, I'm good at tequila shots. But, um, <laughs> but I, I'm terrible at telling jokes, and I, you know, I screw up the punchline, and if there's a key word, I'll get too anxious, and I'll, you know, if the key word is orange I'll say tangelo so um, I'm terrible but I don't think that that's what funny is and jokes for me are um, men tell them forgive me but men tell jokes mm -hmm. and that's not about them being funny that's about them saying I once heard a guy who was funny and I am repeating what he said um, and, and so funny people, uh, and you know, funny people too, are, are people who make the stuff up on the, on the fly. And, you know, every word in that, you know, just the fact that it's Subway and Donuts is brilliant, right? Um, so you're very funny and you know, you can smell the joke from, you know, you know where the funny is. So, um, yeah, being able to tell a joke is really unimportant and not a skill that anybody should pursue. Right. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm really pleased that we've cleared that up. No, because I, I do think you're right. There is, that is quite a profound observation, I think, about. Because I find that, um, that I, more and more in midlife, when, because stuff really starts happening to you in midlife, like there's ill health, yours or someone else's, you start to lose people, you've got you've got more skin in the game because you may have had children and that sort of changes every cell in your body and you feel things really profoundly. And I find that, um, that, and you know, and also life is really boring a lot of the time. Like it's a lot of waiting, it's a lot of cues, it's a lot of tax returns. And I, so I find that I need, I need to smell the funny more than ever, and more than I ever have before. And actually at times, and that writing the column has actually made me very sensitive to this, I might not have noticed it before, but it's, it's helped me. It's sort of the only thing that got me through something. Mm. Mm. So um, if I can mention that there's a, a, a column in the book that I don't like to read. Um, I find it very painful to reread, and it's about hospital visiting. So my dad 
um, was very, well, he was dangerously ill about a few years ago. And, um, and he was in a bad way. And so he was in the high dependency unit at Wellington Hospital. And everyone in that ward was in a bad way. And anyone who's spent any time in hospitals with seriously ill people knows that um, time stands still. Mm. You feel every passing minute. It's sort of excruciating and really boring at the same time. And all you can do is wait. And I was literally sitting there watching, watching this monitor with my dad's oxygen saturation levels. And I just was like, go up, go up, because they were dangerously low. Anyway, so I thought to myself, you better take notes. You know, let's just turn this into an exercise. And, and, so I, and, and so I started to kind of write down what I was hearing and the things that I was seeing. And there was this couple, this isn't that funny, but there was this couple, so, so it was like quite an elderly couple, and the husband was uh, the patient and the wife was next to him, and there was a third person sitting there, and they were having a conversation, and they were just like me, just filling in time and just hoping something good was going to happen. And I heard this uh, woman say to her husband, she was talking about some friends of theirs who had been on a Scandinavian cruise. And she was saying, yeah, well, um, so they'd see, they saw the fjords and they saw the puffins and they saw, you know, they saw the ice caps and um, they saw the aurora borealis. They're back down to earth in Johnsonville now. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> It's freaking hilarious. And I just thought to myself, you know, I wasn't in the state of mind where I could laugh out loud and that would have been rude, but that's the moment you think, because I found that funny mm. and mm. because I'm going to tell that story later, I've got a bit of hope today. You know, like yeah, I've got right. perspective. I can see through this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I, I just have a feeling that without it, I'd be in a lot of trouble. So, that ability, yeah. So humour then, like, not just as a defence mechanism, humour as a coping mechanism, humour as sort of humour as, like you said, that thing where you laugh together, at, like, as a sharing mechanism. It's, it, and a little bit more than that, too. I don't think it's just a coping mechanism. It's what you were saying. It's about hope. Because if yeah. you can find the, you know, if you can find the thing in the darkest times to smile and inwardly laugh about, then then it's all going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I do the same thing. I watched, I was, you know, with my dad when he died and, and over those months and now with my mother and I keep notes of the hilarity that um, yeah. I'll, I'll use later. So, yeah, it's helping me get through, but it's also giving me a really clear picture that life goes on. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, we get that. Yeah. So... Is there anywhere or any topic or any, I mean, a, a, as writers, as performers, where humour has no place? Is there anywhere the mirror of humour should not be shone? No. It's, you can make a joke about anything, anywhere. It depends. My rule is punch up, not down. Do you guys know what that means? The, the butt of the joke needs yeah. to be the powerful person um so i i don't do i would do jokes about race but i wouldn't do racist jokes i've i've written comedy sketches about rape um hilarious haha <laughs> 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 and yeah so no i think i don't think anything's off the table at all yeah yeah there i i agree i just just so so much a part of the human condition but there is um i think you have to interrogate the intention, like where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. So I find, for example, that um, there's, a, there's, there's sort of chilly humour and there's warm humour. And the chilly humour is really efficient humour. And I think that shock, the sort of shock jock culture comes into that. It's like, that's going to fill a stadium. That's going to mm. shock people. That's going to get me publicity. It's almost like Excel spreadsheet comedy. And, you know, for someone... For me, Jimmy Carr is someone like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think, yeah, he's enormously successful. He's mega rich. He's got all his tax. He's only on a, like a, on a, in a tax haven. He's got all his assets in a tax haven. I think, you know, to me, that's not, that's, there's no service in that. I think, as Michelle described, the kind of comedy that she is, she tells with that sort of, the intention she has is very 
warm and there is an element of service in it. And it can be quite an ambitious um, service, changing the world, you know, dismantling un- power structures, shining a light um, like you did this morning, you know, on um, people, people of colour, trans people, like... Those things are really, humour is a wonderful way to deliver those messages mm-hmm. without alienate, alienating people. Um, but you can tell pretty quickly, you know, whether someone's telling you what, what you can just, you just have an instinct for these things. Um, one thing I would say, though, is that, and one of the challenges of writing weekly column is that the mood of the country changes every week. And what's appropriate this week might not be appropriate next week. And I learnt that. I think we all did after the mosque attack. Yeah, yeah. It's been extremely difficult to write lightly because is it too soon for jokes? Is it too privileged to tell a joke? Do I have the right to mention this? Um, often with us, there's a long lead time yeah, when we file. what's your lead time? My lead time, so the, the magazine goes to print 10 days in advance. Oh, shit. So I'm, I'm filing <laughs> two weeks in advance, <gasps> oh. which makes it really That's difficult. Really so I can't write about that week. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I'd be very good at that either. But so what I found was when, when after the mosque attacks happened, my, um, you know, I'd read three weeks worth of commentary. Yeah before I felt I could write about it. And um, there was a story I told about a little boy in the playground who um, the morning, you know, the, the Monday after the attacks, and he, he said something to me that was incredibly profound and a real gut punch, and it was about race and power and childhood, and it was amazing. And he had brown skin, and that was integral to what he said to me. And I thought, it took me two weeks to decide, am I... Do, am I do I have permission to, is it appropriate for me to write? Am I exploiting this kid? Mm-hmm. When actually I think what he said mm. was incredibly important. Mm. So you are constantly, I think, having to, even in a small, gentle way, ask yourself, is this the time? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. what is it in service of? That's a lovely way that you framed it. Mm. Then. Yeah. 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 I'm six days now, lead time. Used to be two weeks. And I... You know, it's, it's such a good, what I think we've learnt then is that, you know, you don't do that knee-jerk reaction yeah. that lots of columnists who can write and get it online within an hour do because we have to think about not just the event but the things that lead to it, so that all of the issues around it. Um, because you know that the news story is going to move on. You know, my deadline's Monday at 5 o'clock. And it comes out on Saturday morning. So the news, the, the story is going to change so much in those five days that I can't write about the event. I can only write about, like with the, um, the column this morning about Semenya, it's, I had to write about not just a woman being told she had too much testosterone to run particularly. Like, she's okay. It's like, it's like, be angry, be angry, go, go, go. go. Like, she's, a, she's, she's allowed to be a woman if she runs longer than 800 metres. She's regarded as a woman. But if she runs 800 metres, which is her particular skill, she's not a woman. Fuck you. Yes. It's just ridiculous. Sorry. And I'm saying that because my word limit is 450 words, which didn't really give me time to say that part and be funny. And it mm. just drives me insane. So what I really want to do every week when it comes out is to sit down and tell people all the things I didn't get to squeeze into my 450 words. What's your word limit? I, 450 words is brutal. That's really cruel. 800 words. Oh my God, I dream of 800 words. 800 words is a lot. I like used to have 600 and there's room for jokes. Yeah. And when they cut, because now I do a side by side with my husband Jeremy. So now it's 450 and it's so hard to find the space for the joke now. So I haven't really written very funny columns for the last year, I think. I think they're mostly angry. Well, we'd like to change the name of this session to Writing Angry and a little bit funny. <laughs> oh, calm down now. That is, that is, I don't think I could write a four. It's sort of wasting column. your time, really. Like you want to do a ballroom dance, but you feel like you're Morris dancing in 450 words. It's cruel. It's cruel. Anyway, that's... Actually yeah. very different. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we talk about, for you guys, I know you've mentioned some people who 
inspire you, Caitlin Moran, or don't inspire you, Jimmy Carr. So what, who are some other people that you would name check for us here that, are, that have been great inspirations to you both in terms of writing funny? You go, because I'm terrible at proper nouns. <laughs> um, so I have, a, I have a bunch. Sue Townsend was mm. probably the Adrian Mole Diary. I was about 11 or 12, and that book was being passed around among, among the grown-ups, and then it went around Stratford Primary School. It was like contraband. Like, have you read this? There's a kid in here who's a year older than us. He measures his thing. And, like, it's full. It's just so brilliant. It's just a satire. It's a brilliant political satire. And what I love about Sue Townsend's writing she, she's, is that she, she, was, she was angry. Mm. My mm-hmm. God, she was angry uh, in Thatcher's Britain. And she was poor, and she was a single parent, and she was living on 10 peas, and she wrote a masterpiece. And the other thing is that men read her. Now, I know I'm not saying that that makes her fabulous, but I think a female humorist, a public wit, writing for men and women is still pretty unusual. Mm. And I've sort of tried to think about that sort of over the course of the 20th century. Now it's a little different, thank God, because of you know, the digital age and the explosion in, in funny women online who aren't being held back. But the only other person I could think of easily spring to mind, I could think of 10 men, was Dorothy Parker. So the first public wit where men bought Vanity Fair to read her Mm. theatre reviews. And it's like, that's interesting to me. Mm. I think think I'm mainly read by women. And women, they're my people. Lindsay loves you. (laughs) Lindsay loves you. Yes. (laughs) But I would, I I really want men to read me too. Mm. Because I feel that, then I've sort of punched through something. Mm-hmm. And it's not my only goal, it's just a goal. Well, it's, it's the opposite of preaching to the choir, isn't it? I mean, you want to reach the people who see the world not the way that you see it. That's the whole point of writing, really, isn't it? To give people a perspective that they don't get themselves. So, so yes, you do want to reach people who aren't you, and some of those people are men. So Dorothy Parker, who else? Dorothy Parker. Um, Caitlin Moran is a massive hero to me, so that I was delighted uh, when you said that I might be a little bit like her. Um, um, Jenny Diskey, for some reason, and I don't know that she's necessarily funny now I'm thinking about her, but I just find her, um, um, her prose dances. Um, and I loved uh, Clive James' um, very much when I was growing up, uh, Rosemary McLeod and Tom Scott were. I would race home from school the day the listener came out mm. to um, to read their, you know, both columns and cartoons. Which was, I thought, it, all cartoonists were columnists and all columnists were cartoonists because you open the listener and there's Rosemary and Tom both doing cartoons and columns. Um, I'm not necessarily a fan of uh, of. Rosemary's work now, but uh, those years when I was growing up, very much, hugely, hugely. My favourite book, I told you that my mother had reference books. My favourite book, and it's still, I still, yeah, is the um, uh, Century of Punch. Oh, yeah. Cartoons. Um, big, it's a, I've, still, I've got it, my mother let me have it. Um, it's huge, uh, bound, beautifully bound book. Uh, and the century, I think, it was um, 1850 to 1950. <laughs> um, and it's got, it's just this massive book full of cartoons. And that was, so graphic um, visual humour was really huge for me. For you as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Giles cartoons. and Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for the dark politics. That's everything I understand about UK politics comes from Giles cartoons. Perfect. It's, like, it's actually it's a really, really good, good guide. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, we could have Giles for Brexit. That would sort yes. a few things out. Yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I put in a, a little plug here for Diana Wichtel? Yeah. You can? So, yes. It's, it's technically, this yeah. is your panel, so you can oh. do whatever what you want. <laughs> yes. um, Diana Wichtel, to me, it's interesting. You talk about, you know, seminal people in the listener. The listener was a really culturally really important to, you know, especially growing up in, you know, pre-digital age in a small town. Like, that was like, that's culture. I'll yeah. have that. And the um, thing about Diana Wichtel is, 
it's sort of a, she's so she's always I feel we take her for granted her brilliance for granted she every week for donkey's years she has filed the most crisp precise yep. Yep. disciplined brilliant TV reviewing plus all of the profiles she writes she does it every she doesn't draw any attention to herself and now unfortunately only the people who subscribe to the listener read her regularly so this is a sort of quiet brilliance humorist no one really notices mm. and then last year year before she publishes this memoir <sighs> where she reveals that actually she is nursing this unbelievable survivor's guilt the death of her you know the memoir about the death of her father who essentially was a holocaust victim mm. and we discover that she is a genius you know and um, she's getting critical recognition now for that memoir in a way that she didn't for her humour. But I don't think you can separate the two. No, no. There's tremendous pain there, and she's been making us laugh for years. So to me, that's an extraordinary lesson. We're so lucky to have the writers we do. She's so talented, I quite like to stab her. <laughs> she's just, she does all of it. It's really, yeah. you know, the criticism and also the creative and the funny and the everything. And she's a really nice person. I want to see. I, want, yeah, I had I a glass of wine with her one afternoon. It was really. No, I was on the on the outside. I'm going. Oh, it's lovely to meet you. I do love you. And on the inside, I'm going. Yeah. Oh God, what am I like? Sorry. Happy stabbing. Then you want to happy stab? Yeah, happy stab her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, I'm, that's universal, isn't it? That you meet people who can do lots of things and you really admire them. You want to kill them. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about that sitting here with both of you, I have to say. Like, I just, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really conscious of time, so I'm going to just... One last question from um, me before we open it up for questions um, from you guys. Um, tips. Tips for um, aspiring funny people. Writers. Read everything. Re yeah, read funny. Read funny stuff. I mean, that's what I tell people who want to do stand-up comedy is watch mm -hmm. it. Watch lots of it. Notice what the rhythms are, what the, um, what the tools are, the, how it's structured. Just consume. You know, um, if you want to be a great chef, you've got to eat shit. I mean, don't eat shit. <laughs> but you have to eat, right? You have to love eating food before you can be a great cook. So consume. Um, consume funny writing. Yeah. And, and the other thing is to find or become aware of your authentic voice. That's the most important thing. Listen to the way you talk and see if you can make that the way, or you know, base the way you write on the way you talk. I have one practical tip, which I've only started employing recently, and that is when you've written something, I use the text-to-voice function on... My laptop, and it's sort of awful. It's like this robotic, metallic voice telling me what I've just written. But I can hear the problems. I can hear, <gasps> By okay, that doesn't out, work. By reading it out loud. Yeah, hearing it out loud. It is such a clever thing to do. It's probably, even if you're like writing a, a job application, probably worth listening to it. That was a really, that's, I, I, do that, I do that religiously now. Wow. It's really, really good. I think you can do it on your phone. Does it not um, work if you just read it out loud to yourself? Is it different? No, no, it's really different. Like, so I'll, I'll write something and then I might, I don't know, do the dishes or something and I'll play it back to myself and I'll go, ooh, ooh, no, that sentence gets lost or huh? that's not great what I said there. Mm, or, or, or what? I don't understand what I mean. What I mean. So then I'll go back and edit. I, li I only edit very lightly, but I, I'll, I do that now. That's amazing. It's a good. It's a really good tip. Top tip. Yeah. But the you other thing is less practical, which and practical tips are, I think, probably really helpful. But um, just just don't wait for permission. You know. Mm. Just don't wait to be asked because I did. Um, but also, you have <coughs> to believe in in your ability. You have to. To, to, you have to. It's an enormous act, writing humor or any kind of writing. It's an enormous act of faith in yourself. You know, you're, you've got faith in yourself that what you've written is worth reading, and then you have to have faith in the person reading it. And then, you know, if you're writing commercially, you have to have an editor who has faith in you. So it's a, it's a faith relationship. And if you don't have that fundamental self belief, you're not going to be able to come out of the blocks very fast. And I don't know how you teach self belief. Um, 
it's taken me a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you need that. Just turn off the trolls in your head. Mm. Mm. And yeah, just, yeah. just start. That's what I would say. Thank mm. you. All right. Let's see what the questions are here from the floor. Ian. Wait, wait for the microphone. No, I know. But <laughs> some people might not have loud ears, so let's just wait for the microphone. I just following on from the waiting for the trolls to leave you know what you were saying i i'm one of the blokes that really enjoys female humorous writing particularly the three people we've got here but i look to see more female stand-up and i don't see that and i've promoted comedy locally and i know other promoters who've tried to get more women into the lineups is there is there anything you think that's behind that <gasps> oh <coughs> You'd be best place to answer that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, um, it's very strong in Auckland and Wellington, um, the community stroke industry um, in Auckland and Wellington is, I would say, now 50-50 uh, gender split, um, plus some non-binary and transgender comedians now as well, which is fabulous. So... Um, uh, in terms of, so you're talking about getting local people here? Well, to, about this right, okay. So, um, well, the best way to, um, to get women into doing stand up is to invite them. Um, <laughs> uh, madness. Um, uh, and uh, make them feel very welcome. Uh, a particular, you know, we do workshops for women to support each other, network with each other. There's really good Facebook groups for um, women comedians. Um, so we can share knowledge, contacts, where gigs are, all of those things. Um, and then just create a space that is not um, antagonistic and aggressive, which I know happens. Um, you know, green rooms can be um, very blokey and, uh, yeah, we, we all need to be better at policing that and making um, people who aren't men welcome in those otherwise potentially aggressive spaces. Thank you. Um, I have a question that follows on from that, so maybe you and I should talk. But this is for you, Michelle. Um, so I do plenty of speaking in public. I've got material that I've written, and I've set a goal for myself this year to do stand-up. My friend is off in the MC and keeps saying, come along, come along. And I'm like, oh, no, I need to take the dog to obedience no. classes. No. or you know, there's All these excuses. <laughs> How do I get over the mindset of just going and giving it a go the first time? Um, do whatever it is that you do that you would be more ashamed of not turning up than you are fearful of turning up. So invite some people to be there. You know, I think that's what they tell addicts, right? You can't deal with addiction by yourself. You have to tell people that you're dealing with addiction because then you've got everybody else okay. pressuring you. So get some people to pressure you to get you there. And the, Preferably you know, people who find me. Find oh, yes. Me. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. The good and kind people. The, you right. know, the people that you know who will love you even if you really screw up. Yeah. Um, and, and you won't because everybody's first gig, can I tell you a secret, everybody's first gig is terrific. Oh. It's your second gig that'll be shit. Oh, okay. <laughs> Like books sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. go do that first gig. It'll be <laughs> fabulous. You'll okay. be, you, there'll be so much adrenaline. People will uh, be gracious and generous with you. It, it will be wonderful. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Also, I think when Leah was saying, um, don't wait for permission, mm. you, you were also speaking directly to her, weren't yeah. you? Like, yes. <laughs> I, can I just also say, anytime anybody really wants to do something, I suspect that they have at least some of the... The, the ability and skills that they need to do it. You don't. You don't have a desire to do something based on nothing. Mm-hmm. Stack the room with your friends. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to the question here. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for a wonderful panel. This is for Michelle. So you reminded us that you do a side by side column. Can you tell us more about how that works? Yeah. So I they. Mm, uh, <laughs> um, I was I. Bleh. I've been doing it for writing a column, a weekly column for ten, nearly eleven years now, and they noticed at Fairfax that I was writing a lot about gender politics, and some people were not happy about that. So um, they said, "What we probably need is a male voice to balance it, because um, 
because women are just everywhere. So, um, and they came up with it. So that was the message. And the editor at the time uh, came up with the idea that uh, it could be my husband, Jeremy, who is also a comedian and writer. And so, uh, and we explained, we will never disagree with each other because if we disagreed, we wouldn't be married. Um, happily. <laughs> and uh, so the way it works is that... Um, we usually decide on Sunday what we'd like to write about and then we don't talk about it anymore. Um, or maybe we do have a column, yeah. And then we don't look at each other's column uh, until five to five on Monday and sometimes one of us has to, we'll make some changes because we've said the same thing in the same way. Um, so yeah, so that's how that works. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I don't, I... I, I, I resent now having to share what I'm going to write my column about with somebody else. I mean, I love him and he's great. But I <laughs> used to really love sitting down on Monday morning with a five o'clock deadline and just be inside my own head with no one to say it's going to be about. Because sometimes the joy of writing is this column is going to be about a cup. And by the time five o'clock comes, it's actually about a carafe. Mm. Yeah. That's one thing I love about both your work, actually, and your columns lit. I'm never really sure, like, where it starts, I'm never really sure where it's going to end, and I mean that as a great compliment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the Simpsons style of writing. You know how... The, Is that right? Yeah, the, you know, the Simpsons... Um, so I'm talking a lot. But um, every episode of The Simpsons, if you're looking for it, you'll see that the first three, four minutes of The Simpsons is about... A, it's a complete story in itself that has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the episode. I love that structure. I'll make sure to watch more of yes. it. Right, I think we've got time for one more question before you all head out towards the university bookshop table to buy your books, which um, Michelle and Leah will be available to sign. Let's go for the last question. Hi there, ladies. Um, thanks very much for your talk. It's been really um, entertaining. And Leah, I'm Renee from Palmerston North. <laughs> Renee! <laughs> Renee is a writer. <laughs> Renee. Um, and I just wanted to ask how long it takes you ladies to put your columns together. Yeah, it's a good question. So <clears throat> Emily Simpson, my editor, she gave me some terrific advice when I started. And she said, write it, basically write it once. Write it quickly, write it once. Don't revise too much. Don't sleep on it too much. Um, because it's a bit like um, mixing cookie dough, you know. Don't overfold it because the cookies will go rock hard. So what I try and do in an ideal week, I'll sit down on a Monday after school drop-off and I'm best in the, mon in the mornings. I, I'm not very good at writing in the afternoons. And ideally, in a good, good week, I will have it finished by lunchtime. So um, it doesn't always go that way because the fact is I don't have a lot of material on Monday. I usually have one image or maybe one line in my head, or one thing has happened that week that's sort of snagged and, 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 and I've gone back and gone, that's, there's something in that, you know. So it's quite threadbare. There's not a lot there. And then, I hope this happens to you, Michelle, mm -hmm. I go into a, sort of a trance. Mm -hmm. So if anyone sort of wants to know what my creative process is, I sort of, sort of don't know. I'm sort of half in the room and half not in the room. Just on a good week, it will just flow. And you never know where it's going to end. The only thing I'm really religious about is I watch the clicker at the bottom so I know how many words. And I always, always, always file 800. Always. Never exactly more, never less. Yeah. <gasps> I'm really, that's, that's my little compulsion. Yeah. So Mondays can be a really good day. Mondays can be a really scary day. Yeah. Mm. Exactly the same. Yeah. I no, I don't have a school run, but apart from that, yeah, yeah, and I don't know how long it really takes. I just because I'm not there when I'm doing it. You know, you know what that's I mean. That's really that's so. It's great. I've never spoken to a columnist yeah. before. Yeah, um, that's good to know. And yeah. people can walk into my office. My office is in my house, but you know, Jeremy might come in and say, "Do you want a cup of tea?" And I go, "Ah, Portugal." And <laughs> I don't know that he's been there. I'm wow, it's, it's yeah, it's a lovely feeling. It's beautiful. It's flow, isn't it? That's yeah. what they call it flow. The philosophers call it flow. You've got to have it somehow. Some people do it jogging. Some people do it sailing. Some people do it. I don't know how other people do it, but that is flow. Everyone needs that moment of flow. My only other trick is that once it's finished, before I send it, I close it and I go. I leave the room. Oh wow! And go, um, you know, hang out the washing. 
chop an onion, I don't know what the fuck I do, but um, move around, move physically around, because while, and not think about it, and while I'm doing that, it, I will, the word, the right word, it shouldn't have been asbestos, it should have been whatever, I don't know what I'm talking about, but you know what I mean, so once, once yeah. my, I've tricked my brain into thinking it's finished, then my brain will go, you forgot to say the thing that would have been really good. So I go back and open it and fix it and then send it. Thank you. And then delete, so fuck you. And then <laughs> yes, <right>. yes. <laughs> Always delete that at the end. Um, and, and this is the end. It's been a lovely session. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you to the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival for having Michelle and Leah here to entertain us all. Thank you to the University Bookshop for selling their books outside that you were about to go and get signed. Um, thank you, the audience, for being here and supporting it. Thank you, Liz. You're yeah, awesome. Liz. That was thank great. Thank you very much, Liz. Oh, very good. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation. Mm-hmm.